Chapters twenty seven and twenty eight of Mike. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Mike, a public school story by P. G. Woodhouse. Chapter twenty seven The Ripton Match. Mike got an answer from his father on the morning of the Ripton match. A letter from Wyatt also lay on his plate when he came down to breakfast. Mr. Jackson's letter was short, but to the point. He said he would go and see Wyatt early in the next week. He added that being expelled from a public school was not the only qualification for success as a sheep farmer, but that if Mike's friend added to this a general intelligence and amiability— and his skill for picking off cats with an air-pistol, and bull's-eyes with a lee-enfield, there was no reason why something should not be done for him. In any case, he would buy him a lunch, so that Wyatt would extract at least some profit from his visit. He said that he hoped something could be managed. It was a pity that a boy accustomed to shoot cats should be condemned for the rest of his life to shoot nothing more exciting than his cuffs. Wyatt's letter was longer— it might have been published under the title, My First Day in a Bank, by a Beginner. His advent had apparently caused little sensation. He had first had a brief conversation with the manager, which had run as follows. Mr. Wyatt? Yes, sir. Hmm. Sportsman? Yes, sir. Cricketer? Yes, sir. Play football? Yes, sir. Hmm. Rackets? Yes, sir. "'Everything?' "'Yes, sir.' "'Hm. Well, you won't get any more of it now.' After which a Mr. Blenkinsop had led him up to a vast ledger in which he was to inscribe the addresses of all outgoing letters. These letters he would then stamp and subsequently take in bundles to the post-office. Once a week he would be required to buy stamps. "'If I were one of those Napoleons of finance,' wrote Wyatt, I should cook the accounts, I suppose, and embezzle stamps to an incredible amount. But it doesn't seem in my line. I'm afraid I wasn't cut out for a business career. Still, I have stamped this letter at the expense of the office, and entered it up under the heading Sundries, which is a sort of start. Look out for an article in the Rickinian, Hints for Young Criminals, by J. Wyatt, Champion Catches Catch Can Stamp Stealer of the British Isles. So long. I suppose you are playing against Ripton, now that the world of commerce has found that it can't get on without me. Mind you make a century, and then perhaps Burgess will give you your first after all. There were twelve colours given three years ago, because one chap left at half-term, and the man who played instead of him came off against Ripton. This had occurred to Mike independently. The Ripton match was a special event and the man who performed any outstanding feat against that school was treated as a sort of Horatius. Honours were heaped upon him. If he could only make a century, or even fifty, even twenty if it got the school out of a tight place, he was as nervous on the Saturday morning as he had been on the morning of the MCC match. It was victory or Westminster Abbey now. To do only averagely well, to be among the ruck, would be as useless as not playing at all, as far as his chance of his first was concerned. 
It was evident to those who woke early on the Saturday morning that this Ripton match was not likely to end in a draw. During the Friday, rain had fallen almost incessantly in a steady drizzle. It had stopped late at night, and at six in the morning there was every prospect of another hot day. There was that feeling in the air which shows that the sun is trying to get through the clouds. The sky was a dull grey at breakfast time, except where a flush of deeper colour gave a hint of the sun. It was a day on which to win the toss and go in first. At eleven-thirty, when the match was time to begin, the wicket would be too wet to be difficult. Runs would come easily till the sun came out and began to dry the ground. When that happened, there would be trouble for the side that was batting. Burgess, inspecting the wicket with Mr. Spence during the quarter to eleven interval, was not slow to recognize this fact. "'I should win the toss today if I were you, Burgess,' said Mr. Spence. "'Just what I was thinking, sir.' That wicket's going to get nasty after lunch if the sun comes out. A regular Rhodes wicket it's going to be. I wish we had Rhodes, said Burgess, or even Wyatt. It would just suit him, this. Mr. Spence, as a member of the staff, was not going to be drawn into discussing Wyatt and his premature departure, so he diverted the conversation on to the subject of the general aspect of the school's attack. "'Who will go on first with you, Burgess?' "'Who do you think, sir? Ellerby. It might be his wicket.' Ellerby bowled medium, inclining to slow. On a pitch that suited him, he was apt to turn from leg and get people out, caught at the wicket or short slip. "'Certainly Ellerby. This end, I think. The other's yours, though I'm afraid you'll have a poor time bowling fast today, even with plenty of sawdust.' I doubt if it will be possible to get a decent foothold till after lunch. "'I must win the toss,' said Burgess. "'It's a nuisance, too, about our batting. Marsh will probably be dead out of form after being in the infirmary so long. If he'd had a chance of getting a bit of practice yesterday, it might have been all right. "'That rain will have a lot to answer for if we lose. "'On a dry, hard wicket, I'm certain we should beat them four times out of six. I was talking to a man who played against them for the Nomads. He said that on a true wicket there was not a great deal of sting in their bowling, but that they've got a slow leg-break man who might be dangerous on a day like this, a boy called De Vries. I don't know of him. He wasn't in the team last year. I know the chap. He played wing three for them at footer against us this year on their ground. He was crocked when they came here. He's a pretty useful chap all round, I believe. "'Plays rackets for them, too.' "'Well, my friend said he had one very dangerous ball "'of the Basanquit type. "'Looks as if it were going away and comes in instead.' "'I don't think a lot of that,' said Burgess ruefully. "'One consolation is, though, "'that that sort of ball is easier to watch on a slow wicket. "'I must tell the fellows to look out for it. "'I should, and above all, win the toss.' Burgess and McLean, the Ripton captain, were old acquaintances. They had been at the same private school, and they had played against one another at football and cricket for two years now. "'We'll go in first, Mac,' said Burgess, as they met on the pavilion steps after they had changed. "'It's awfully good of you to suggest it,' said McLean, "'but I think we'll toss. It's a hobby of mine. You call.' "'Heads.' 
Tails it is. I ought to have warned you that you hadn't a chance. I've lost the toss five times running, so I was bound to win today. You'll put us in, I suppose. Yes, after us. Oh, well, we shan't have long to wait for our knock. That's a comfort. Buck up and send someone in, and let's get at you. And Burgess went off to tell the ground man to have plenty of sawdust ready, as he would want the field paved with it. The policy of the Ripton team was obvious from the first over. They meant to force the game. Already the sun was beginning to peep through the haze. For about an hour, run-getting ought to be a tolerably simple process. But after that hour, singles would be as valuable as threes, and boundaries an almost unheard-of luxury. So Ripton went in to hit. The policy proved successful for a time, as it generally does. Burgess, who relied on a run that was a series of tiger-like leaps, culminating in a spring that suggested that he meant to lower the long jump record, found himself badly handicapped by the state of the ground. In spite of frequent libations of sawdust, he was compelled to tread cautiously, and this robbed his bowling of much of its pace. The score mounted rapidly. Twenty came in ten minutes. At thirty-five, the first wicket fell. Run out. At sixty, Ellerby, who had found the pitch too soft for him, and had been expensive, gave place to Grant. Grant bowled what were supposed to be slow leg breaks, but which did not always break. The change worked. McLean, after hitting the first two balls to the boundary, skied the third to Bob Jackson in the deep, and Bob, for whom constant practice had robbed this sort of catch of its terrors, held it. A Yorker from Burgess disposed of the next man before he could settle down, but the score, seventy-four for three wickets, was large enough in view of the fact that the pitch was already becoming more difficult, and was certain to get worse, to make Ripton feel that the advantage was with them. Another hour of play remained before lunch. The deterioration of the wicket would be slow during that period. The sun, which was now shining brightly, would put in its deadliest work from two o'clock onwards. McLean's instructions to his men were to go on hitting. A too liberal interpretation of the meaning of the verb to hit led to the departure of two more Riptonians in the course of the next two overs. There is a certain type of school batsman who considers that to force the game means to swipe blindly at every ball on the chance of taking it half volley. This policy sometimes leads to a boundary or two, as it did on this occasion, but it means that wickets will fall, as also happened now. Seventy-four for three became eighty-six for five. Burgess began to look happier. His contentment increased when he got the next man leg before wicket with the total unaltered. At this rate, Ripton would be out before lunch for under a hundred. But the rot stopped with the fall of that wicket. Dashing tactics were laid aside. The pitch had begun to play tricks, and the pair now in settled down to watch the ball. They plodded on, scoring slowly and jerkily, till the hands of the clock stood at half-past one. Then Ellerby, who had gone on again instead of Grant, beat the less steady of the pair with a ball that pitched on the middle stump and shot into the base of the off. A hundred and twenty had gone up on the board at the beginning of the over. 
That period which is always so dangerous when the wicket is bad, the ten minutes before lunch, proved fatal to two more of the enemy. The last man had just gone to the wickets with the score at a hundred and thirty-one when a quarter to two arrived, and with it the luncheon interval. So far it was anybody's game. Chapter 28 Mike Wins Home The Ripton last wicket man was de Fries, the slow bowler. He was apparently a young gentleman, wholly free from the curse of nervousness. He wore a cheerful smile as he took guard before receiving the first ball after lunch, and Rickon had plenty of opportunity of seeing that this was his normal expression when at the wickets. There is often a certain looseness about the attack after lunch, and the bowler of Googly's took advantage of it now. He seemed to be a batsman with only one hit, but he had also a very accurate eye, and his one hit, the semicircular stroke, which suggested the golf links rather than the cricket field, came off with distressing frequency. He mowed Burgess's first ball to the square-leg boundary, missed his second, and snicked the third for three over long slips head. The other batsman played out the over, and de Fries proceeded to treat Ellerby's bowling with equal familiarity. The scoring board showed an increase of twenty as the result of three overs. Every run was invaluable now, and the Ripton contingent made the pavilion re-echo as a fluky shot over Mid-On's head sent up the hundred and fifty. There are few things more exasperating to the fielding side than a last wicket stand. It resembles in its effect the dragging out of a book or play after the denouement has been reached. At the fall of the ninth wicket, the fieldsmen nearly always look on their outing as finished. Just a ball or two to the last man, and it will be their turn to bat. If the last man insists on keeping them out in the field, they resent it. What made it especially irritating now was the knowledge that a straight Yorker would solve the whole thing. But when Burgess bowled a Yorker, it was not straight. And when he bowled a straight ball, it was not a Yorker. A four and a three to defrease and a four by sent up a hundred and sixty. It was beginning to look as if this might go on forever, when Ellerby, who had been missing the stumps by fractions of an inch for the last ten minutes, did what Burgess had failed to do. He bowled a straight, medium-paced Yorker, and de Fries, swiping at it with a bright smile, found his leg stump knocked back. He had made twenty-eight. His record score, he explained to Mike, as they walked to the pavilion, for this or any ground. The Ripton total was a hundred and sixty-six. With the ground in its usual true hard condition, Rickon would have gone in against a score of a hundred and sixty-six with the cheery intention of knocking off the runs for the loss of two or three wickets. It would have been a gentle canter for them. But ordinary standards would not apply here. On a good wicket, Rickon that season were a two hundred and fifty to three hundred side. On a bad wicket, well, they had met the incogniti on a bad wicket, and their total, with Wyatt playing and making top score, had worked out at a hundred and seven. A grim determination to do their best, rather than confidence that their best, when done, would be anything record-breaking, was the spirit which animated the team when they opened their innings. And in five minutes this had changed to a dull gloom. The tragedy started with the very first ball. 
It hardly seemed that the innings had begun when Morris was seen to leave the crease and make for the pavilion. "'It's that googly man,' said Burgess blankly. "'What's happened?' shouted a voice from the interior of the first eleven room. "'Morris is out.' "'Good gracious, how?' asked Ellerby, emerging from the room with one pad on his leg and the other in his hand. "'L.B.W. First ball. "'My aunt. Who's in next? Not me. "'No, Barrage. For goodness' sake, Barry, stick a bat in the way and not your legs. "'Watch that defreece man like a hawk. He breaks like sin all over the shop. "'Hello, Morris. Bad luck. Were you out, do you think?' A batsman who has been given L.B.W. is always asked this question on his return to the pavilion, and he answers it nine cases out of ten in the negative. Morris was the tenth case. He thought it was all right, he said. Thought the thing was going to break, but it didn't. Hear that, Barry? He doesn't always break. You must look out for that, said Burgess helpfully. Morris sat down and began to take off his pads. "'That chap'll have Barry if he doesn't look out,' he said. "'But Barrage survived the ordeal. "'He turned his first ball to leg for a single. "'This brought Marsh to the batting end, and the second tragedy occurred. "'It was evident from the way he shaped that Marsh was short of practice. "'His visit to the infirmary had taken the edge off his batting. "'He scratched awkwardly at three balls without hitting them. The last of the over had him in two minds. He started to play forward, changed his stroke suddenly, and tried to step back, and the next moment the bales had shot up like the debris of a small explosion, and the wicket-keeper was clapping his gloved hands gently and slowly in the introspective, dreamy way wicket-keepers have on these occasions. A silence that could be felt brooded over the pavilion. The voice of the scorer, addressing from his little wooden hut the melancholy youth who was working the telegraph board, broke it. One for two, last man duck. Ellerby echoed the remark. He got up and took off his blazer. This is all right, he said, isn't it? I wonder if the man at the other end is a sort of young Rhodes, too. Fortunately, he was not. The star of the Ripton attack was evidently defreece. The bowler at the other end looked fairly plain. He sent them down medium pace, and on a good wicket would probably have been simple. But today there was danger in the most guileless-looking deliveries. Berridge relieved the tension a little by playing safely through the over and scoring a couple of twos off it. And when Ellerby not only survived the destructive defreece's second over, but actually lifted a loose ball onto the roof of the scoring hut, the cloud began perceptibly to lift. A no-ball in the same over sent up the first ten. Ten for two was not good, but it was considerably better than one for two. With the score at thirty, Ellerby was missed in the slips off to Freese. He had been playing with slowly increasing confidence till then, but this seemed to throw him out of his stride. He played inside the next ball and was all but bowled and then, jumping out to drive, he was smartly stumped. The cloud began to settle again. Bob was the next man in. Ellerby took off his pads and dropped into the chair next to Mike's. Mike was silent and thoughtful. 
He was in after Bob, and to be on the eve of batting does not make one conversational. "'You in next?' asked Ellerby. Mike nodded. "'It's getting trickier every minute,' said Ellerby. "'The only thing is, if we can only stay in, we might have a chance. "'The wicket'll get better, and I don't believe they've any bowling at all, bar de Freese. "'By George, Bob's out. No, he isn't.' Bob had jumped out at one of de Freese's slows, as Ellerby had done, and had nearly met the same fate. The wicket-keeper, however, had fumbled the ball. "'That's the way I was had,' said Ellerby. "'That man's keeping such a jolly good length that you don't know whether to stay in your ground or go out at them. If only somebody would knock him off his length, I believe we might win yet.' The same idea apparently occurred to Burgess. He came to where Mike was sitting. "'I'm going to shove you down one, Jackson,' he said. "'I shall go in next myself and swipe and try and knock that man de Freese off.' "'All right,' said Mike. He was not quite sure whether he was glad or sorry at the respite. "'It's a pity old Wyatt isn't here,' said Ellerby. "'This is just the sort of time when he might have come off.' "'Bob's broken his egg,' said Mike. "'Good man, every little helps. "'Oh, you silly ass, get back!' Berridge had called Bob for a short run that was obviously no run. Third man was returning the ball as the batsman crossed. The next moment the wicket-keeper had the bails off. Berridge was out by a yard. Forty-one for four, said Ellerby. Help! Burgess began his campaign against de Freese by skying his first ball over cover's head to the boundary. A howl of delight went up from the school, which was repeated fortissimo, when more by accident than by accurate timing the captain put on two more fours past extra cover. The bowler's cheerful smile never varied. Whether Burgess would have knocked de Freese off his length or not was a question that was destined to remain unsolved, for in the middle of the other bowlers over Bob hit a single. The batsman crossed, and Burgess had his leg stump uprooted while trying a gigantic pull-stroke. The melancholy youth put up the figures, fifty-four, five, twelve, on the board. Mike, as he walked out of the pavilion to join Bob, was not conscious of any particular nervousness. It had been an ordeal having to wait and look on while wickets fell, but now that the time of inaction was at an end, he felt curiously composed. When he had gone out to bat against the MCC on the occasion of his first appearance for the school, he experienced a quaint sensation of unreality. He seemed to be watching his body walking to the wickets, as if it were someone else's. There was no sense of individuality. But now his feelings were different. He was cool. He noticed small things, mid-off chewing bits of grass, the bowler retying the scarf round his waist, little patches of brown where the turf had been worn away. He took guard with a clear picture of the positions of the fieldsmen photographed on his brain. Fitness, which in a batsman exhibits itself mainly in an increased power of seeing the ball, is one of the most inexplicable things connected with cricket. It has nothing or very little to do with actual health. A man may come out of a sick room with just that extra quickness in sighting the ball that makes all the difference or he may be in perfect training and play inside straight half-volleys. Mike would not have said that he felt more than ordinarily well that day. 
Indeed, he was rather painfully conscious of having bolted his food at lunch. But something seemed to whisper to him, as he settled himself to face the bowler, that he was at the top of his batting form. A difficult wicket always brought out his latent powers as a bat. It was a standing mystery with the sporting press how Joe Jackson managed to collect fifties and sixties on wickets that completely upset men who were, apparently, finer players. On days when the Olympians of the cricket world were bringing their averages down with ducks and singles, Joe would be in his element, watching the ball and pushing it through the slips as if there were no such thing as a tricky wicket. And Mike took after Joe. A single off the fifth ball of the over opened his score and brought him to the opposite end. Bob played ball number six back to the bowler, and Mike took guard preparatory to facing DeFreeze. The Ripton slow bowler took a long run, considering his pace. In the early part of an innings he often trapped the batsmen in this way by leading them to expect a faster ball than he actually sent down. A queer little jump in the middle of the run increased the difficulty of watching him. The smiting he had received from Burgess in the previous over had not had the effect of knocking DeFreeze off his length. The ball was too short to reach with comfort, and not short enough to take liberties with. It pitched slightly to leg, and whipped in quickly. Mike had faced half-left and stepped back. The increased speed of the ball, after it had touched the ground, beat him. The ball hit his right pad. "'Sat!' shouted Mid-On. Mid-On has a habit of appealing for LBW in school matches." DeFreeze said nothing. The Ripton bowler was as conscientious in the matter of appeals as a good bowler should be. He had seen that the ball had pitched off the leg stump. The umpire shook his head. Mid-on tried to look as if he had not spoken. Mike prepared himself for the next ball with a glow of confidence. He felt that he knew where he was now. Till then he had not thought the wicket was so fast. The two balls he had played at the other end had told him nothing. They had been well pitched up, and he had smothered them. He knew what to do now. He had played on wickets of this pace at home against Saunders's bowling, and Saunders had shown him the right way to cope with them. The next ball was of the same length, but this time off the off stump. Mike jumped out and hit it before it had time to break. It flew along the ground through the gap between cover and extra cover, a comfortable three. Bob played out the over with elaborate care. Off the second ball of the other man's over, Mike scored his first boundary. It was a long hop on the off. He banged it behind point to the terrace bank. The last ball of the over, a half volley to leg, he lifted over the other boundary. Sixty up! said Ellerby in the pavilion, as the umpire signaled another no-ball. "'By George, I believe these chaps are going to knock off the runs. Young Jackson looks as if he was in for a century.' "'You ass,' said Berridge. "'Don't say that, or he's certain to get out.' Berridge was one of those who are skilled in cricket superstitions. But Mike did not get out. He took seven off DeFreese's next over by means of two cuts and a drive, and with Bob still exhibiting a stolid and rock-like defense, the score mounted to eighty, thence to ninety, and so, mainly by singles, to a hundred. 
At a hundred and four, when the wicket had put on exactly fifty, Bob fell to a combination of defrice and extra cover. He had stuck like a limpet for an hour and a quarter and made twenty-one. Mike watched him go with much the same feelings as those of a man who turns away from the platform after seeing a friend off on a long railway journey. His departure upset the scheme of things. For himself, he had no fear now. He might possibly get out off his next ball, but he felt set enough to stay at the wickets till nightfall. He had had narrow escapes from de Freese, but he was full of that conviction, which comes to all batsmen on occasion, that this was his day. He had made twenty-six, and the wicket was getting easier. He could feel the sting going out of the bowling every over. Henfrey, the next man in, was a promising rather than an effective bat. He had an excellent style, but he was uncertain. Two years later, when he captained the Rickon teams, he made a lot of runs. But this season his batting had been spasmodic. Today he never looked like settling down. He survived an over from de Freese and hit a fast change bowler who had been put on at the other end for a couple of fluky fours. Then Mike got the bowling for three consecutive overs and raised the score to a hundred and twenty-six. A bye brought Henfrey to the batting end again, and de Freese's pet googly, which had not been much in evidence hitherto, led to his snicking an easy catch into short slips hands. A hundred and twenty-seven for seven against a total of a hundred and sixty-six gives the impression that the batting side has the advantage. In the present case, however, it was Ripton who were really in the better position. Apparently, Ricken had three more wickets to fall. Practically, they had only one, for neither Ash nor Grant nor Devonish had any pretensions to be considered batsmen. Ash was the school wicket-keeper. Grant and Devonish were bowlers. Between them, the three could not be relied on for a dozen in a decent match. Mike watched Ash shape with a sinking heart. The wicket-keeper looked like a man who feels that his hour has come. Mike could see him licking his lips. There was nervousness written all over him. He was not kept long in suspense. De Freese's first ball made a hideous wreck of his wicket. "'Over,' said the umpire. Mike felt that the school's one chance now lay in his keeping the bowling. But how was he to do this? It suddenly occurred to him that it was a delicate position that he was in. It was not often that he was troubled by an inconvenient modesty, but this happened now. Grant was a fellow he hardly knew, and a school prefect to boot. Could he go up to him and explain that he, Jackson, did not consider him competent to bat in this crisis? Would not this get about and be accounted to him for side? He had made forty, but even so. Fortunately, Grant solved the problem on his own account. He came up to Mike and spoke with an earnestness born of nerves. For goodness sake, he whispered, collar the bowling all you know or we're done. I shall get outed first ball. All right, said Mike, and set his teeth. Forty to win. A large order, but it was going to be done. His whole existence seemed to concentrate itself on those forty runs. The fast bowler, who was the last of several changes that had been tried at the other end, was well-meaning but erratic. 
The wicket was almost true again now, and it was possible to take liberties. Mike took them. A distant clapping from the pavilion, taken up a moment later all round the ground and echoed by the Ripton fieldsman, announced that he had reached his fifty. The last ball of the over he mishit. It rolled in the direction of third man. "'Come on!' shouted Grant. Mike and the ball arrived at the opposite wicket almost simultaneously. Another fraction of a second, and he would have been run out. The last balls of the next two overs provided repetitions of this performance, but each time luck was with him, and his bat was across the crease before the bales were off. The telegraph board showed a hundred and fifty. The next over was doubly sensational. The original medium-paced bowler had gone on again in place of the fast man, and for the first five balls he could not find his length. During those five balls, Mike raised the score to a hundred and sixty. But the sixth was of a different kind. Faster than the rest, and of a perfect length, it all but got through Mike's defense. As it was, he stopped it, but he did not score. The umpire called over, and there was Grant at the batting end, with de Vries smiling pleasantly as he walked back to begin his run with the comfortable reflection that at last he had got somebody except Mike to bowl at. That over was an experience Mike never forgot. Grant pursued the Fabian policy of keeping his bat almost immovable and trusting to luck. Point and the slips crowded round. Mid-off and mid-on moved halfway down the pitch. Grant looked embarrassed, but determined. For four balls he baffled the attack, though once nearly caught by point a yard from the wicket. The fifth curled round his bat and touched the off stump. A bale fell silently to the ground. Devonish came in to take the last ball of the over. It was an awe-inspiring moment. A great stillness was over all the ground. Mike's knees trembled. Devonish's face was a delicate gray. The only person unmoved seemed to be de Vries. His smile was even more amiable than usual as he began his run. The next moment the crisis was past. The ball hit the very center of Devonish's bat and rolled back down the pitch. The school broke into one great howl of joy. There were still seven runs between them and victory, but nobody appeared to recognize this fact as important. Mike had got the bowling, and the bowling was not de Vries's. It seemed almost an anticlimax when a four to leg and two twos through the slips settled the thing. Devonish was caught and bowled in de Vries's next over, but the Ricken total was 172. "'Good game,' said McLean, meeting Burgess in the pavilion. "'Who was the man who made all the runs? How many, by the way?' Eighty-three. It was young Jackson, brother of the other one. "'That family! How many more of them are you going to have here?' "'He's the last. I say rough luck on de Vries. He bowled rippingly.' Politeness to a beaten foe caused Burgess to change his usual. "'Not bad.' The funny part of it is, continued he, that young Jackson was only playing as a sub. You've got a rum idea of what's funny, said McLean. End of section.